and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I am speaking with Dr. Jonathan Kruskal, Chair of the Department of Radiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, Professor of Radiology at the Harvard School of Medicine, and immediate past president of the American Rentkin Ray Society. As past chair of the Quality Management Committee of the American College of Radiology and past chair of the Quality Improvement Committee of the Radiological Society of North America, Dr. Kruskal is an expert on the establishment and management of radiology quality programs within health systems. Johnny, welcome. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about your childhood in South Africa. Where were you born there? Born in Cape Town, the tip of Africa. I still think the most beautiful city in the world. And I grew up in Cape Town, spent all my years there until actually emigrating to the United States. And I grew up in the apartheid era, obviously was pretty blinded to what was really going on in South Africa at the time. You grew up in an incredibly segregated environment, segregated schools, social events, beaches, you name it. You know, so looking back in retrospect, I had a very privileged experience. I went to a boys-only school, which was a typical government school. I was mad about sport, and I spent all my time playing rugby in winter and cricket in summer and athletics in between and table tennis when not in between. And so I was very, very sport-oriented, and I would spend most of my afternoons on the fields, weekends playing games, and I played at a pretty competitive level all those times. We had a little beach house and would spend our time on the beach on weekends. And as a family, we were very close, still are, and had an amazing growing up in that my father was very into photography. We spent a lot of time on safari camping and over the years visited probably every safari park in Southern Africa, and this was our annual vacation. And so to this day, in fact, that love of animals and photography has followed through. And as many probably know, I'm a mad, crazy bird photographer and spent half my life cursing at the hummingbirds for not sitting still. Let me get back to some of those earlier days, because I want to hear a little bit more about your family life. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yep, I've got two younger sisters. In fact, my entire family have now shifted to United States, and they both live in New York City. I see. Great. And so how many years younger are they than you? My middle sister is two years younger, and my baby sister, who I still refer to as the baby sister, she is six years younger than me. Your parents, what did they do for a living? My mother, interestingly, was a radiographer, an x-ray tech, and worked in our hospital. So when I was doing my internship, I could get expedited service whenever we needed portable chest radiographs. My mother would come and do it. And then I'd be the one tasked with going to tell her she needed to come back to catch the lung apices or the bases or whatever. My father was sort of a jack of all trades. He was into property development and management. He was very into the arts and theater and movies. And interestingly, at some period of his life, ended up actually working for a government censorship board for movies and music and books, in large part because of his very oft-stated opposition to the process. And so he jumped on to see if he could try and help. And so growing up, we were exposed to movies and music, you name it, constantly. And both of my parents were very involved in the theater. 
My dad is a photographer. My mother used to help with making the clothes and stuff. And my middle sister actually is an actress, and she's an actress to this day. That's the family. It's remarkable the extent to which the interests of your parents have really manifest in you, both from the standpoint of your mother as a radiographer and your pursuit of radiology and your father as a photographer and interest in the arts and your pursuit of photography. It's great. You know, that means they are harsher critics of what one does. I've never expected my father to say, that's a great photograph. I'm more used to the, wow, why do you think it's a little blurred or overexposed or whatever? But absolutely, it's amazing how we impact those that we're trying to grow beneath us. Do you recall any vignettes or perhaps dinner table conversations that you had during your childhood that's sort of emblematic of that time of life and your family being together? You know, most of our discussions, interestingly, were either about our passions, you know, our animals, our photography, our art, our theater, our music, or politics. My mother was very involved in politics and worked for a large women's organization, a charitable organization, an advocacy organization, and many of our discussions were political in nature. And we obviously we represented the very far left wing of South African politics, as did all of our friends and colleagues. And, you know, unfortunately, it also meant that most of my friends have left the country. And it was a big gap that was left in the country. The overwhelming number of my colleagues at med school left and they scattered all over the world. So politics played a very important role in what we did, as did obviously planning family events and enjoying family events together. So the topic of apartheid then was a component of those political discussions? Very much so. And, you know, it's interesting, obviously, once one leaves that environment to get a better sense once one is outside. But for example, you know, I grew up in an era where there was this person called Nelson Mandela who was portrayed essentially as a terrorist who tried to set off bombs and do some nasty things who was sentenced to life in prison. But none of us knew really what the story was or where he was or what he'd done. And in fact, one couldn't even advocate or protest or whatever. So there were some incredibly stringent government processes in place to try and limit political discussion and opposition, as everyone knows. But yeah, I would say that our entire circle, all of my friends were very liberal, but you were very restricted in what you could and couldn't do. And it certainly limited what one does. And it leaves a certain amount of guilt, obviously. Guilt that you are growing up in a privileged environment, you are going to better schools, you are getting into university when others can't. You can afford to go to university, you can afford to live in very nice neighborhoods, and you can afford to leave the country and emigrate to somewhere else and get a good job. There was an Oscar-winning movie a couple of years ago by a South African psychiatrist who was trying to deal with this guilt of having grown up in this environment, now landed a great job in this country. And so there's a large component of giving back. And, you know, since you seem to like to tie things together, I think we obviously have nice exchange programs with Southern Africa, and there's a certain element of giving back. And in fact, in our department, one of our South African faculty, and we've had a number, runs an MR course through the Röntgen Ray, providing MR lectures to seven different Southern African countries. And so we're trying to do that. We're trying to have a visiting faculty. We're trying to share educational content. And it's all part of giving back and part of the guilt. I guess that's what it is. You mentioned Nelson Mandela, and he is held out as one of the world's greatest leaders. Many of his actions taken, particularly after he was released from prison, but even while he was in prison, are truly remarkable. I'm curious, at what point... In your life, were you exposed to Nelson Mandela as an exemplary leader as opposed to a terrorist? 
And what are your perspectives on his leadership as a South African? There were two people I'd mentioned. The first, you know, is Nelson Mandela, where the books describing the positive aspects for him were banned, and so we didn't know much about it. A lot of the so-called terrorist activity in the country was blamed on organizations that he was very involved in. My mother had a poster on a back window of her motor car saying, Free Mandela, and that window got shattered with a rock. You did what you felt was safe and could do, but certainly we all knew lots of people that were imprisoned. The government had a process where they could randomly ban people. They couldn't appear in public or in educational facilities. And so I knew very, very little. We knew he was this famous person, but we never quite knew why, and we didn't know what potential existed. It's only literally once he was let out of prison, when he was freed, that we could read the books and hear the TV shows and start understanding what it was that he was all about. I think for me, there was another person, Steve Biko, who was a physician. Steve Biko was murdered in large part. He was head of the Black Consciousness Movement, and he got murdered. And none of us, of course, knew much about Steve Biko, but we all became very aware of him at med school because he'd had suffered from some severe head injuries and the physicians looking after him had said that he was making these up, the Babinski reflex and all these upgoing plantar reflexes, etc. And we knew that you can't make these things up. And so our chief of neurology had gone very public about this. And so we had protest meetings at our university. And I'll never forget one day sitting in on a meeting when a group of people were throwing a fire, like lit paper and lit stones and things, uh, wood through the window at us in this room. And so that was amazing. And it was only many, many years later when they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa that all of this came to the fore. Yes, he had been murdered. And yes, these were the doctors. And yes, they were asking for forgiveness, etc., etc. So there were a lot of unbelievably brave people doing incredibly brave things. And I think for Mandela, what really I sort of failed to comprehend the extent with which he was not looking for vengeance. He was not looking for blame. He was just looking to move things forward rather than looking back. And that, for me, as easy as is to say, is something I've always tried to stick by, which is you can get so caught up in punitive actions and really horrible situations. And if you're going to let it impact what you do going forward, you're never going to make a difference. And, you know, unfortunately, he was really this unbelievable humanitarian, respected leader. You know, there's not exactly a gazillion people like that who've been able to follow in his path, obviously. But, you know, I've read all his books a gazillion times and books about him, movies about him. We all know the Oscar-winning movie about the rugby team when he came forward and put on the rugby jersey, the Invictus movie. And, you know, I think the whole poem Invictus is sort of emblematic of who he is. An amazing person. And the tragedy is none of us really got to experience him during those years that we wished we could have. Yeah, remarkable. It seems, though, that he is a guiding light in your leadership. Yeah. You know, over the years, I've done a lot of talks on leadership, which certainly by no means means that I'm the standard or should be doing it, but it's something that I've been very interested in. And I think as a leader, one needs to know what are those attributes that can help one to be more effective? What are those attributes that really might predict that you're less effective? How can you transition? And I think reading his books, looking at all his quotes, there's a real humble component to him. His ability to forgive, to try to forget, to move on, to collaborate to an incredible extent. And he wasn't just collaborating 
in a, a sort of a black-white world, you know, a sort of a left-wing, right-wing, an English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking world. In Southern Africa and all over Africa, there's a large tribal component. And even within South Africa, there's so many different tribes and languages and cultures. And he was the one person who, fortunately at the time, was able to bring a lot of this together. And so he was able to bridge different preferences, cultures. And I think now, you know, in the quality world, we all try to focus so much on high-functioning team building. He really was emblematic of that. You know, everything he did was about building teams and how can you be inclusive, and, you know, the way in which they've been inclusive has been unbelievable. You have to be inclusive intentionally, irrespective of the consequences. And I think where it hit South Africa the most was, all right, our national rugby team, which trust me in South Africa is the national thing. The national rugby team has to be intentionally inclusive of everybody in the country. And you can imagine how well that went down with a lot of right-wing conservative rugby fans, you know. And so... That's worked out really well. You know, it took time and you have to accept that there's a long journey and path forward. And so everything he's done has really been amazing. Are there any moments that you can recall in your leadership where you said to yourself after a particularly challenging moment, wow, I think that's what Nelson Mandela might have done, or at least reflecting back and saying, you know, thank goodness for Nelson Mandela's example. You mentioned at the beginning of this discussion about my interest in performance quality improvement. And quality improvement is an area that one always struggles with because you get a lot of the complaints that you have to manage with. And it's very challenging to get physicians, radiologists in particular, to see and to transition from thinking from process data to outcomes and the provision of value. Very difficult because there aren't really that many metrics and key performance indicators, as we all know. And I think when I go back to the basics about saying in order to provide high-quality care, you've got to have a functioning collaborative team. And this is what he did. And this is something I try to go back to. And that team right at the onset means that there needs to be a flat authority gradient. And so that's something I try to subscribe to. I really don't like it when people call me Dr. Criscoll. I'm Johnny. I always want to be Johnny to everybody. At least that's the polite thing that I tend to get called. I think you have to be intentionally inclusive. And, you know, as a radiology leader, and trust me, I'm sure my colleagues listening to this will say, hang on, you know, you need to walk your talk. Correct. I think, you know, you can't in an academic department or in a practice just have those senior members surrounding you to provide your help, your protection, whatever. You need to also engage the multi-generational members of your team now, which is becoming so important and something that we haven't really recognized. And I think, you know, when you start thinking of team function, why does a team function well? It functions well because people have a voice. And we struggle to provide a voice in particular the last three years. And people need to be able to speak and to be heard. And this is what he did so well. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which Bishop Desmond Tutu led, was an unbelievable event in world history where they allowed anybody to come forward and to describe what they did. And we're talking things like terrible murders and then to ask the family of the victims for forgiveness. And in many cases, this happened. You know, honestly, we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And I think, you know, if you look at my, my resume, a lot of the papers I've written have been my own personal errors, that perforation of the colon from CT colonoscopy. We've published this. We've never been afraid to speak up and share our mistakes. And a lot of my peer learning interest is me saying, yes, I missed that lesion in the mesentery. Yes, I overstaged that liver lesion. Yes, I mischaracterized that acnexal cyst. I have no problem saying these things. And it's something that I think I've learned over the years, which is be willing to speak up and admit your mistakes. 
in the hope that others will learn and start doing the same thing. I know it takes a while. I always talk about the culture of quality and the culture of peer improvement. So that's pretty much what I think I've learned and have tried to at least sort of walk that talk. Coming back to your childhood, what was your first job outside the house? Really? Literally, after finishing my medical school, you always do an internship. And that was the first sort of really paid job. We don't do internships here as a stepping stone to residency. And in South Africa, it's the British system. So I did six months of internal medicine, four months of general surgery, two months of pediatric surgery. And this was an amazing experience working in amazing hospitals. During that time was when I started getting an interest in liver disease. There's, as you know, an enormous amount of liver disease in Southern Africa. HCC is endemic parasitic infections. At the time, it was non-A, non-B, but here, a and B were when everyone had it amongst our patients. And this is where I got this interest. And so during my internship, we're not allowed to start residency straight away. I didn't quite know what to do. I went to meet with a wonderful mentor of mine, a guy called Ralph Kirsch. And Ralph was head of the South African Liver Research Center. And Ralph said, Johnny, I've got just the position for you. And so I joined the South African Liver Research Center at our hospital where in essence I joined the internal medicine residency because one of the resident positions was the liver registrar or resident. And so I became the liver registrar. I ran a liver clinic uh, twice a week. I worked in the emergency room for my call at night and I started doing basic science and I spent five years registered for a PhD. And in the time we started looking at mechanisms with which liver tumors can spread within the liver. And this was all fibrinogen. They move along a fibrous network at the time. And so in order to measure this, we needed to be able to measure fibrinogen degradation fragments and there were no assays for the so-called FDPs, the figure and degradation products. And so we started homing in on what the tumors seem to produce. And liver tumors can produce abnormal fibrinogen protein. And this is where a little protein called D-dimer came to my attention. But there was no way of measuring D-dimer. So I set about developing an assay for D-dimer. And this took me about three very painful, long, late-night years. And ultimately, at the end of it, we actually developed the first assay, clinical assay, for D-dimer. It's like, all right, let's get going. So what should be our next project? We published it. And then it's like, let's do a clinical study. And so we actually did a cardiac, believe it or not. My first paper was in, was in cardiac imaging. We looked at a patients with chest pain, acute and chronic chest pain. And we actually measured D-dimer in these patients and showed that those with unstable acute angina actually are probably forming small clots. And that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I was pretty... Happy with that one. And so one thing led to another. We looked at D-dimer in a multiple different diseases. And, you know, being in Africa, we didn't exactly have access to monoclonal antibodies. And so all of a sudden, a lot of commercial assays came. And that's when D-dimer took off and became a commercial rapid assay for PEs. So that was how things happened. And I spent five years doing that. And it was an unbelievable proving ground for me. And that five years learning to do literature searches, learning to analyze data, learning some basic laboratory techniques, learning to write papers, learning to write abstracts, learning to give talks. So for five amazing years, I really had the basic science training that I think has been the sort of springboard for everything else in my life. So we have you to thank for the D-dimer assay. Well, I'm sure there are others out there who would disagree, but ours was a first clinical Really painful. It took me about five days to measure it because it required extracting protein from serum. It required running gel electrophoresis, scanning them. It required actually radioimmunoassay, which, as you know, takes a couple of days. But yeah, a great one for a clinical study. That's awesome. At what point did you decide that you wanted to be a physician? 
In my early days in high school, we had wonderful, what they called guidance counselors in school. These were staff members who would meet with us and try and advise us on what we should do next. And I loved science. From a young, young age, I loved science and was always collecting insects and you name it. And I'll never forget sitting down with this teacher saying, I'm going to go to university and do it. At the time, a Bachelor of Science was a very common degree. And she said to me, what are you going to do afterwards? I said, well, I'll do what everyone does. We'll get an honors, which is a year-long program. And then what? She said, well, then I'll do a master's degree. And then what? I'm not quite sure. Then maybe you'll do a PhD, which is another three, four years. And she said, you know, Johnny, maybe if you go to med school, which for us obviously was six plus one years, it's a lot quicker and you'll have a job that you can get and earn a salary. And so one thing led to another, and it's like, yeah, I think medicine's exactly what I want to do. And that's how it happened. Was your mother a strong influence there? Did she used to take you to the hospital at all to see her work as a radiographer? You know, it's interesting. When I was very young, when I was six months old, I had sort of an acute illness. For some reason or other, I developed hemolytic uremic syndrome. To this day, they're not quite sure if it was an antibiotic-induced or post-viral. And I recovered Interestingly, it was enough for the South African military to consider me medically unfit about 20 years later, which is not necessarily the case. And that's why, in fact, I didn't have to go and do military service. But throughout my life, I was always trying to understand what is this hemolytic uremic syndrome? What was it that kept me in hospital on a ventilator for so many weeks? And what was it as six months old that no one knew about? And obviously, it's a very different disease now, and it's easily and quickly treated. But at the time, they had no idea, and they had no idea how to treat it. And it sort of became something that was like all engrossing. And people would always say, you know, why are you not going to the military? And blah, blah, blah. It's like, because I had this. And so I was always interested in looking at these things and understanding them more. My mother also going into the hospital, talking radiology. Obviously, in her day, radiology was largely the barium and the plane films. You know, ultrasound was coming in strongly. South Africa was way behind in availability of CT at the time. We had very good nuclear medicine. I was aware of it, familiar with it, but I wouldn't say to any great extent because also the fact that I went into liver, that's the whole internal medicine path. And I'm sure at some point you're going to say, how the hang did this all lead to radiology, which, <laughs> which is, seems even more far removed from everything. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there for sure. So you went to the University of Cape Town and there you had both your general undergraduate education admixed with the medical school experience. Tell us a little bit about that educational process. And also, were there any activities that you pursued while in medical school that were extracurricular or leadership related? So first of all, the educational process is very narrow and restricted and there is no general education component. So literally, you leave high school in a December one year and in January, three weeks later, you start med school and there are no general liberal arts subjects or anything like this. You go straight into biochemistry and, you know, physiology, statistics, maths, you name it, physics, chemistry, organic chemistry, you know. So in a way, you're very limited and you do that straight for six years. So it's really a very focused education of six amazing years at medical school. While at medical school, I did find many different arts. I was involved in a large student organization. It's called RAG. It's a sort of a charitable group that collects money and supports and provides healthcare in some of the squatter communities. And so we had a couple of Winnebago's that had been donated over the years. And then we used to get enormous supplies sent out from Europe and America 
I mean, I hate to say it, of expired medications and things like that. And we would go literally weekly or monthly, depending on availability, into the townships. And, you know, the first year med student would do pulse and blood pressure. And the second year would feel the abdomen. And the third year might do joints and listen to the heart. And the fourth year would do the neuro exam. And there would always be a single physician supervising but it was amazing. You would arrive there and there'd be a line of literally up to 100 people, families, children, all waiting to be seen. This was the only medical care they got. You would see all these patients and sometimes we would put some in the van and take them straight off to the hospital. You're seeing dermatology as the community sees it, all the impetigo on the children's mouths, the jaundice. And then what do you do as a third year med student with someone who can't afford transport to be worked up? The pneumonias that you could manage and try, the urinary tract infections, the epilepsy, just unbelievable opportunity to learn. And that was amazing for me. And so I got very involved not only in that, but also in the charitable arm, collecting money to support that. I was involved in medical school politics. I was on the sort of student leadership council. I was our class representative to do all that stuff. So I loved getting involved. I was probably more involved than I should have been. And I suspect that was probably reflected in my scores, but that's okay. I've always liked to get involved in as long as the goal is the same at the end. And so, yeah, I like to do lots of different things and I always have, and I've always liked to keep my finger in many different parts. Was that your first real exposure to the lifestyle that that portion of the population had, or was that something that you had been aware of and seen for many years and it was your first opportunity to really jump in and help? My entire family, going back generations, had been involved. And my grandmother was involved in an organization called the Black Sash. And this was a group of women that used to provide legal advice to people. And I recall these discussions, family discussions from a young age. She would come and we used to have weekly dinner together. And she would share with us, you know, some of the items that had come across her. And she wasn't a lawyer by any means. And she would come and just share these incredibly sad stories. You know, someone came to speak to her about this legal issue or seeking legal advice. And there were really so few solutions. And to some extent, she was just providing some ears to hear these problems. And it was heartbreaking, really. And so we would hear these stories and she was willing to help, but couldn't really often provide the help that these people were looking for. And I think that sort of engendered this sort of spirit of wanting to help, wanting to do something. You know, I think, and I've always subscribed to the concept of small steps. And, you know, if you're going to want to go in and save the world, it's not going to happen. So at least if you can try and take small little bites and do something, it's more than just to feel good, which obviously is an important component of it. But you try to do something. My mother was also involved in the Black Sash, and she used to be involved in running charitable drives. That they used to get people to stand on street corners with a little yellow box collecting money every Saturday morning to support these legal services. It was very difficult, but... I would say that this was a minority of the white population that were involved in these type of activities. But I think from a young age, our discussions were political and it stuck with me to this day, really. With all of this exposure and background, you mentioned how your initial direction upon completing medical school was toward hepatology and toward the liver. And maybe speak just a moment about what was it that led to you routing your way to the liver? You know, I think during my internship, we were exposed to an enormous amount of liver disease. And my first clinical project actually as an intern was to do an audit of all the gastric carcinoma cases in our hospital. So we came across, you know, 126 cases. I mean, this is the sort of pathology that we had available to us. 
126 gastric carcinoma cases that have been operated on. And we had all the pathology and all the liver ultrasound findings and all the local nodal spread and things like that. And so we actually analyzed that, wrote that up. And I think in studying it, suddenly ultrasound became important because it was like, hang on, are you serious that those little hard copy images are telling you that this is a stage three or four tumor? And I think also as an intern, I love getting my hands dirty. And we used to put drains into amoebic liver abscesses. We used to try and characterize these different parasitic conditions in the liver. There was an enormous amount of hep B and HCC. I'll never forget, we had a ward full of patients with caval thrombi from HCC extension up into the vena cava. So you know, really extensive advanced pathology available to us. And this is what sort of got my interest going. But I think there's another parallel story over here. And that parallel story is, on the one hand, yes, liver disease fascinated me. It might have been neurologic or cardiac or whatever. But also, I had this amazing mentor, Ralph Kirsch. And Ralph was just the most kind, gentle, incredible teacher. He was an educator. He became chief of the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town. And he just served as a mentor to so many people, providing career advice. He was involved in a lot of these student organizations. He was involved in everything. And he was a mentor. And so when I went to speak to Ralph saying, what are you suggesting? He was the one who said, Johnny, I've got this position in the liver lab. It's like, okay, this is a no-brainer. That's what I'm going to do because why? A, I'm interested in liver, but B, Ralph, I would love the opportunity of continuing to work under you. And I think that's important because, honestly, with fibrinogen and D-dimer, I could have gone off on any. In fact, you know, I've written crazy stuff on, on rheumatoid disease with it, neurologic, you name it. So I think it was wanting to work with someone who was really an incredible mentor who did not need to advance his own career. He was only interested in advancing the careers of others. And this is a lesson which I've taken with me. Ralph would do anything for us to advance our careers, to get us involved in organizations, to educate us, to suggest ideas. He never got upset with us. He always worked to eliminate hurdles in our research programs. He always sat down with us and cared about what we were doing. He cared so much when we gave presentations about the quality of the presentations. And a lot of our people worked in his lab. And so the ability to work with someone who could be such a mentor was really impactful. And if Ralph had been head of a lab that studies pathology in the left toe, I might have ended up over there. But he was just an amazing mentor to the extent of even advocating for me to leave South Africa and take a postdoc fellowship at Vanderbilt. Ralph was involved. He came to visit me. He got me that job with a friend of his at Vanderbilt. You know, it's really been a longstanding relationship. And so that was another lesson to me is that if you've got the right mentor, they might not have your particular expertise, but it's this panoply of mentoring expertise that's so, so important. He sounds like a truly inspirational figure and very influential in your life. How have you sought to channel his mentorship for your mentees and paying it forward? You know, I'd like to think that I've been able to literally absorb a fraction of his mentoring skills. And I think the one is that you really have got to connect with your mentees frequently And it can't be one of these tough discussion type things. It's got to be in a fairly informal, casual way in which you're checking up to see how they're doing and what you can do to help 
to advance them in what matters to them. And this is what was important to Ralph always. Johnny, what matters to you? What is your passion? What gives you joy? What is it that I can do to help you do that? Not that we'll be able to do it, but at least give me a sense of what you like so I can keep that in the back of my mind. And when opportunities arise, we can try and create those positions for you. Also being proactive, you know, coming to me and saying, Johnny, there is this opportunity opening up. You might want to think about it. If you are keen, let me know and we can work together to do it. He was never going to push anybody into a position that he didn't feel that they could manage or cope or succeed at. And he would also not be shy to say, this is a great opportunity, but I think you're not quite ready for it. Why don't you do this and this and this? And he was fair. You know, we had about 15 PhD students in our lab, and he was always equally fair to everybody. And he made sure that we each had our own swim lane and no one was treading on each other's toes, that we were all advancing equally, that he was collaborating, bringing people in to help, providing us with the resources. I mean, if you were to write a book on mentoring, he was it. You know, I think we all aspire to do that. And if we can get 50% of that, that's a great record. You know, so I think those are some of the lessons I learned from him. You mentioned that he also encouraged you and helped you to immigrate to the United States and to establish yourself here. Tell us about that process. What led to the decision to leave South Africa? What were the opportunities that you were presented here, as you mentioned, at Vanderbilt? I finished my doctorate in 1987, at which point South Africa was literally on fire. There was incredible unrest never quite recovered from the Soweto riots, which was in my final year at high school, interesting. So in my final year at high school, 1976, two fundamental things happened. Number one was the Soweto riots, where we also were kept very oblivious of what was happening. Even though there were riots which extended nationwide, they were quite close to our school. And I mean, I hate to say it, the extent that it impacted me was that When we had our formal dance at the end of our school year, we couldn't have all the stuff delivered because of the rioting on the roads. And it's like, gee, this seems so unfair. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's like ridiculous to even think like that. Also in 1976, they introduced something called television into our country. So I'm a rather slow adopter to technology. It was only in 76. So three months before my school ending career, they suddenly gave us two hours of TV a night. One hour of Dallas and one hour of the Cosby show. That's it. And so in 87, there was unrest around the country and a lot of people, and when I say people, I say, you know, professional whites, sadly, were leaving. And most of my immediate circle of friends had taken their USMLE tests and they were planning to leave the country or had left. And it was tough because it's not something that I ever grew up wanting to do. And I still do love the country. My entire immediate class social group had left. And At the time, Kirsch came to me and said, Johnny, there's a postdoc fellowship opportunity at Vanderbilt through another fibrinogen person, a friend of his. And I flew over to Nashville. I'd never actually heard of Nashville, but I flew over there and was like, wow, why don't you come here? And we've got a salary and a position and you've got a job. And they literally built a lab over there. I got married to my wife, Pam. And three months later, we got on a plane and flew over to Nashville and Well, hats off to her. She came to Nashville and she's a pharmacist. She couldn't work because of licensing issues. And so when I went off to work every day, she was at home. It was a pretty tough year, two years, but went to Vanderbilt and it was amazing. It was my first experience at a university in the United States. It's a beautiful campus, a great hospital. And I continued doing my basic science work in the lab. We were doing it under the auspices, believe it or not, of an anesthesia department, looking at toxicity of some of the anesthetic drugs on the liver. And we were studying the impact of different drugs on fibrinogen and transferrin and albumin metabolism and expression and things like that 
to be honest, we felt, you know, we'd made this massive move from South Africa to America, very out of touch with our family, and there was no international airport. The symphony orchestra had just shut down, and we didn't have too many friends, apart from a group of South Africans in radiology. You know, we sort of felt that we needed to move to a bigger place, and especially for my career and for my wife's career. I hung out a lot with the South Africans in radiology, some of whom are very, very well known, and they were very, very kind and supportive of me. And I tell you, that's when radiology bugs started hitting. Everett James was the chief of radiology at the time, and Martin Sondler was South African, and Max Schaff, and, and a whole bunch of them. And, you know, it seemed to me that this was an ideal collaboration because when I was running the liver clinic in South Africa, we would spend half our time waiting for the ultrasound report or the CT report, and I'd go to hang out in radiology and look at the studies. And Suddenly, it seemed like liver was a perfect thing for me. And to take my basic science skills, I'd learned a skill of imaging the exteriorized liver. This is something that I'd done. And you can take a liver out of a rat or mouse and put it under a microscope and look at a gazillion different metabolic and cellular and intracellular and microvascular events. And the early days of molecular imaging were upon us. And so I wanted to go to a place that had a liver transplant program and a big liver center. And so I called up a couple of friends and this is where Boston seemed like a logical place. And the Deaconess Hospital had the only transplant program in town. And so I continued and did another couple of years in the lab. And funnily enough, I did another year studying in exteriorized livers. Someone called Anders Lundqvist, who was a very well-known Swedish interventional radiologist who'd done a lot of the work on microvascular flow in the liver and in exteriorized liver, came over and spent a couple of months helping me build up this apparatus in the lab. And so we developed a technique for looking at actually microvascular flow. We used to try and do rat liver transplants, believe it or not. And we looked at all the microvascular perfusion abnormalities. And this led to something that really kept me going for about 10 years in my academic career of looking at the cellular mechanisms of liver metastasis formation. And that was amazing because I did this prior to residency, during my residency and after residency. And it's really what's cemented my academic career and keeping me writing and studying and getting funding and et cetera, you know. So when you went to Boston, you went to New England Deaconess and Mel Klaus was the chair of the department then? He had a lab and you were working in his lab and then that led to the opportunity for you to become a resident in the radiology department? Yeah, I flew up to Boston to interview. And funny enough, it was the same week as my cardiac paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I felt that that was probably influential in a residency selection process. But Mel was the chair. And Mel is an interventional radiologist who'd always been passionate about a couple of things. Mel had developed the lymphangiography technology and was doing a lot of work on intraarterial chemoembolization. He was looking to study whether there's any scientific justification for chemoembolization. And I was always quite critical of it because in a way, knowing that if you make solid organ or mass or tumor ischemic, we knew it was going to engender expression of VEGF, which in fact should generate more tumor growth. So this is why Anders Lundekust came over. And so we developed a tumor model and we used to deliver chemoembolization under a microscope, directly visualizing where the thiodol droplets are going. And so we started studying different mechanisms for enhancing delivery into and around tumors and things like that. And we did some really nice work actually taking colon cancer cells and making them hypoxic and then showing that you could actually increase uptake over the time we used, we used tritiated dornorubicin, which was really the adromycin equivalent. And so this was really the first ever basic science justification that you can drive delivery of a chemotherapeutic drug into an hypoxic tumor cell. 
you know, this was all mechanistic through the P-glycoprotein pump inhibition and you name it. And so, yeah, there was this resident at Deaconess studying P-glycoprotein and hypoxia and tritiated dornomycin. And I'm sure my classmates must have thought I was crazy. But I loved this. And so as a resident, it was amazing. I was traveling around the country giving talks at national meetings, and it was really, really wonderful. So we did that with Mel. And then out of this came an extension when we put little colon cancer cells that had been genetically transformed, either to be aggressive or not, into the spleen. And we watched these tumor cells move from the spleen through the portal vein into the liver. And we studied the mechanism of tumor cell adherence into the liver. And that's where we showed that tumor cells don't mechanically impact in the liver. There's actually a specific adherence to E-selectin, which gets activated by tumor. So we actually showed that a tumor, which you could grow somewhere you know, under the skin, activates the liver to prepare it to receive metastases. And that was pretty frightening, I have to say. And then we started looking at the way that macrophages are activated to come and get rid of tumors or to foster tumor growth. And a lot of this was the early immune complex related work in liver tumors. And so this was really fascinating work. We could look at all these types of things. And, you know, we've continued to this day with a basic science lab. And we've got an amazing group of people in our lab now. Muneeb Ahmed, my chief of IR, and Marwan Musa has just got the RSNA scholarship to continue looking at how we can do this. And it's continued the work, even with Nahum Goldberg, looking at the mechanisms of how you can inhibit tumor growth. Nahum and I used to look at RF ablation of tumors under a microscope and see what was happening. And so for years, we've continued this work. And I think, you know, the, my message has always been do something because you're passionate about it, not because it might get you a grant or drive your academic career. And this is what's just been so fascinating for me that even to this day, I can be interested in what's happening in our basic science tumor biology lab because it's really inspirational and aspirational to me. And I get so proud of my team, what they're doing and seeing them advancing up academically and writing papers and getting grants because I really like the fact that I can still talk about immune complex deposition around the hypoxic zone of an ablated tumor, you know. I might not be able to give the same level talk about finances and operations and stuff like that, but it's something that's very important, especially in an academic career, that you find that thing that gives you some joy and passion. I mean, your passion for research really comes through so strongly, and it's phenomenal that things worked out so well at New England Deaconess. You completed your residency, and then you stayed on as an instructor, and then, you know, essentially have never left. Let's talk about the post-residency period a little bit, because straight out of residency, you were named the Director of Gastrointestinal Imaging and Director of General Diagnostic Imaging. It's intriguing to me the passion you had for research, finally emerging from residency, taking on these leadership roles, which strike me as being relatively operational. Were those leadership roles that you actually sought out? No. To be honest, I'll never forget going to Mel and saying, all right, Mel, I'm now a fourth year resident. What do we think should be the next plan? And Mel's like, I think you need to go to Hopkins for an abdominal imaging fellowship. And it's like, Mel, I got a family. I'm stuck in Boston. I can't be leaving. He's like, you know, what do you suggest if you look at it from that frame of reference? And Mel's like, I think you should go to Hopkins. It's like, Mel, no, it's not going to work. But during a residency, I actually just naturally took to abdominal radiology. And I think my fellow residents were delighted that Johnny Criscoll was only too happy to do the upper GIs and the enemas. And then we had a wonderful program director, Herb Graham, for some strange reason, with the hospital, we a lot of colorectal surgeons joined our hospital. It was a very surgically oriented program. 
And we started doing the deaf ecography. It was, you know, we need somebody to do this. And of course, Johnny Criscoll stepped up. And, you know, you can imagine the names and the acronyms and et cetera that I got called. But yeah, I mean, at some point, I kid you not, I've collected a thousand cases of deaf echograms that I've done. I lectured on it. I made my enduring materials and you name it. And it's finally been time that I can hand it off to my colleagues now. But this was obviously in the pre-pelvic floor M dynamic MR era. But I love doing the GI stuff. I love doing procedures, getting lines in, all these things. So I stayed on and they were only too happy to put me in this role because I took it on both as an operational role and very much as an educational role. I mean, the first thing I did was to take Herb Graham's teaching file, digitize the entire thing. You know, we've named it as the Herb Graham Honorary Teaching Collection that we've had to this day. And to this day, I have the annual Herb Graham Lecture and we've got the Herb Graham Education Commons. So I'm very much also about honoring our past and bringing the past into the present to honor those who've created the path for us. I loved abdominal radiology and somehow, I don't know why or how or when or who, I did like the operational component of it. It just seemed to make sense to me and it happened quite easily. I didn't have any training or anything. And, you know, it's easy to take on more leadership roles once those that you have seem to be working well. Why do you feel it's important to honor the past? Well, first of all, it's a case of how you do it. But I think it's important because it brings certain lessons forward that one doesn't often remember. And so... You know, if I look at our own department to this day, and Herb Kressel taught me this, Jim Thrall actually taught me the whole concept about how important it is to bring the past into the present. And when I meet with the med students every year, I talk about those people in our department and what they've done and why we like to honor them. And for example, the first chair of our department was a Holocaust refugee by the name of Felix Fleischner. We know what Felix Fleischner has done in terms of the lung nodule guidelines. And, you know, when we start, we have an annual Fleischner graduation day and a Fleischner lecture. And Felix used to do something. It's these small little stories. And every year, Felix would go up camping in New Hampshire next to a lake. And there's a photograph I have of him sitting next to the lake with the resumes of all the incoming residents. And he would study the resumes and know exactly who would be joining the department. That's a wow type story. I don't sit and study the resumes of all our incoming residents. I should, and I try to now. But it's a lesson from Felix. After Felix, there was a South African chair of our department by the name of Morris Simon. And Morris, also to some extent very politically active in South Africa, he came over. He's always been very much a patron of the arts, but Morris developed the Simon Nitinol Vena Cable filter. To this day, the family... And the royalties from the filter supports our health services research center named after Morris. And so as we study and memorialize what Morris did, Morris 30 years ago was writing papers in radiology about how we should advertise the costs of imaging studies. Morris was writing papers 30 years ago about how you can use computers to provide appropriate data when interpreting studies. I mean, he was doing things light years ahead of his time. Morris was developing new biopsy guides. You know, an amazing guy. And so we like to sort of honor what Morris has done. After Morris, a Swede, Sven Paulin, was chair at Beth Israel. And Sven, interestingly, he came from the Lund in Sweden, developed coronary angiography, got the paper to show it. And Sven came over and was a wonderful person. And actually, his claim to fame, well, one of them, his daughter is married to Will Ferrell. So Will has been very kind to our department and to this day supports a cardiothoracic imaging research fellowship. And then, you know, if you think of what Herb Kressel has done in terms of developing the rectal coil for MRI 
all the incredible liver MRI and other MR work that Herb's done, the work that Herb did through editing radiology, amazing stuff. And we still need to find a way to honor what Herb has done in our department. And so, you know, maybe I'm just getting a little long in the tooth, gray haired and old that I start doing this, but it's always a fascinating story that you can learn and share and understand why it is that some people, what drives them and why they are so successful that you want to emulate what they've done. We stand on the shoulders of giants. So getting back to those early roles, it seems that you're driven by your passion to explore and to develop gastrointestinal radiology. And if I'm interpreting correctly, there was a bit of a vacuum there and you went in to elevate the quality, the focus, the education. Was there much operational management and leadership involved or was it really just your task to just kind of do what you could to enhance the quality of education and clinical care in these procedures? You know, I think in those days, people were appointed to roles and there wasn't much job description that went with it. And I'll never forget, I used to do a lot of ultrasound. And honestly, I think in the first week of me being an attending, I had to do a rectal tumor staging study. And I was so proud of the fact that, you know, I could actually do a rectal tumor ultrasound staging study and called up the chief of surgery and told him that this was a T3 tumor because of this and this and this. And he said to me, Johnny, no, no, that's T2. It's like, oh dear, now what do I do? You know, I'm so confident about this and I'm calling up the doc. I think I'm adding value and I'm accurate. And that was a very important lesson to me. I discovered that sometimes the referring physicians need certain types of reads to justify the surgical planning that they want. It became very awkward. I had to change my report against my wishes. And the point of it is, is that from that, I worked with another one of my amazing mentors, Bob Kane, and we went in and we did a deep dive study of what are those pitfalls that can lead to tumor over and understaging, specifically for rectal tumors? We went back to all our studies, all the rectal ultrasound studies, and we had a lot of them, looking at the tumors. And we presented an educational exhibit at RSNA on sources of error when over and understaging rectal tumors. And I was so proud of this exhibit. We put, went into radiographics, and then we wrote a paper in radiology on a similar topic, which was you know, what do you do with those patients who have a colonoscopy and there's a small polyp that they remove in the rectum and it comes back malignant? Is there a role for endorectal ultrasound? And we actually showed that there is to show that there's no residual tumor and it guides their surgery. So that to me was the earliest exposure to quality improvement from my perspective. And I've always seen quality improvement as take an issue clinically that's a problem and it's not a problem, it's an opportunity. You know, if you try and, I hate to say it, bury your mistakes, Every single little thing like that becomes an incredible opportunity. And from that, we started having monthly QA rounds in the department. And often I was the one standing up sharing my mistakes, but we try to change the culture to say, okay, we understage this tumor, we overstage it. What might be other sources of error? And that honestly has continued to this day for me. And a month ago at RSNA, I had an educational exhibit and what has come from this was that when we have M&M meetings or QA meetings, when we show misses, people show misses, they call it a missed case conference. There's no helpful discussion a lot of the time as to what to do with it. Say, here's a miss, and most people sort of bury their head in their hands. It's like, you know, thank God it wasn't me that missed that, or, oh, geez, how could someone have missed that? Or, are you serious it was missed? Or, I can understand it was missed. There's no learning or improvement opportunity in that. And so we've started looking at biases. And what are those biases that might result in you missing something or overcalling something or mischaracterizing something? And so this has led to a whole new science. And 
What I'm so excited about is that one of our residents took this in the ER and she got two awards at the recent emergency radiology meeting and got a magna cum laude at RSNA for her work on biases in emergency radiology. So now I'm trying to push my whole faculty, like just take this and run with it because it means instead of just looking at a miss, you can say, what might have led to us missing that or mischaracterizing? And I bet that each of us has our own miss profile and our own bias profile. I bet Johnny Criscoll has five dominant things that bias my interpretations. And maybe, you know, we talk about the use of AI in peer improvement and quality. Maybe when I read a study, there should be some system that could remind me that these are my biases and have I thought about these things. So always trying to move those goalposts a little bit forward, one little tiny bit forward at a time. Based on your retelling, it seems that it was almost an organic development over your years as an attending to take on more leadership roles and those tending toward quality topics because this was something that you became increasingly passionate about. And beginning in 2001, you formally had the title of Director of Quality Assurance Program in the Department of Radiology. What led to the establishment of that formal role and what was the scope of that program? So again, all kudos to Herb Kressel. Herb is visionary in so many ways. You know, I used to run the abdominal quality program. And I think when I've given a role, I like to take it seriously. And I like to find what that role is and what might be the expectations of that role. And I like to build a strategy and, you know, what are we going to try and do this year? And let's be reasonable. What's possible? What's not possible? And it just struck me that there weren't really any organized approaches to improving performance, both technical or clinical And so I started doing this. And as I started showing that I'm interested in it and keen in it, I'd get more and more people giving me missed cases or complications or technical glitches or whatever. And so my email was starting to get completely crowded out with things. I was getting paper notes all the time. And so I started building an online system for recording all of these in a secure way. And so Herb recognized that and said, this seems to be a great opportunity. There's nothing going on right now in the world of quality improvement in radiology that's organized. And so why don't we see if we can build up this process? And so we developed in, I think, 2001, an online system where people could securely submit cases. You know, honestly, at the time, it wasn't just, here's a miss. We wanted to look beyond the misses. It was really, this might be a great pickup. This is a near miss. This is a great save. You know, they didn't do the reconstructions correctly or the patient fell off the bed or there was a contrast. You know, we wanted to gather the spectrum of issues. And we also agreed right up front that this was going to be something that constantly iterated, that we weren't going to build something and that's it. And so we started collecting cases and we wrote this up, I think, in about 2003 in radiology. And in 2003, it was really like the first online quality reporting system, which is really a peer learning system. So, you know, I'd like to think we've been doing peer playing with peer learning since 2003. And it's iterated so much over the years and it's become this massive program. I've got an amazing vice chair now of quality, Bettina Seward, who will ultimately be head of the RSNA quality committee. But, you know, Bettina has her little swim lane of human factors engineering and then Olga Brook in outcomes improvement. And we've developed a whole group of really great academic radiologists, superb academic radiologists who've all taken this and found their own niche and are growing with it. The residents have their own quality council, which has now become a hospital-wide quality council. Every section now has their own quality officer. And then, you know, obviously through my ACR involvement and working with 
someone who I think is unbelievable, Dave Larson, and a whole group of other people at ACR. I don't even want to mention names, but you know, Dan Johnson has always been amazingly kind and really good in this domain. And there's a whole lot of people who've really been impactful and made a difference. But then, you know, I got involved in the ACR quality group and then one thing led to another. And so I absolutely adore my discussions with Dave. He's so intellectually stimulating and real. I'm so happy that he's leading up the whole quality commission. Now, I couldn't think of anyone better than Dave. He's always five steps ahead of everybody else. And it's really amazing. So yeah, it's been something that's been constant. I think my RSNA involvement, we started the quality storyboards, we started the quality certification, we ran the course, the quality course, all of which have continued to this day. In fact, Herb advocated and mentored to arrange for me to head up the quality section in radiographics. That's what led to that. And so we started the whole quality initiative section in radiographics. That's continued to this day, even though they've appended, you know, practice management and leadership to that. But all the storyboards and stuff like that. So a lot of this has gone from the department to the sort of national and actually to the international level. And we continue to iterate. I think peer learning is the big thing right now. And then you start to sort of get into the whole wellness and it constantly evolves. It is remarkable how this kernel of interest evolved into a spectrum of national and internationally influential roles. And appreciate you're just recounting those. I'd like to just talk about quality and radiology a little bit with you. You've mentioned about human factors and biases and such. And, you know, when we think about quality, we can think about it in terms of physical characteristics of the image and image quality, as we put it, as being one side of the equation. And then when you think about the interpretive process and the biases and human factors, as you were alluding to, as a completely different dimension and domain, how do you conceptualize the topic of quality in radiology and help to develop priorities that lead to your confidence that the work that is being pursued is going to have the greatest impact. You know, I've always subscribed the concept of buckets because it's such a broad topic that it's difficult to conceive and get your hands around it if you're just going to try and start a program. And we actually have a quality academy in our department that really gives our trainees certification in the basics and the fundamentals of quality improvement. And when I look at the curriculum, the radiology residents nationally exposed to quality through the non-interpretive skills curriculum, through amazing talks by Dave Larson, actually. And a lot of it also is our radiographics curricular content. But when you look at it, you can see it from two perspectives. The one is the continuum of care that we provide. And so if you just take a single study, take a chest radiograph, and this to me is sort of emblematic of it. It starts with the clinician deciding that they want to order a chest radiograph on a patient. There's already a clinical decision-making process there, and then it becomes the process of ordering that study and providing the right information, etc. Then it's a case of scheduling the study and getting the study done. And you can imagine the number of little steps in that way that can go wrong and need to go right. Then there's the doing the study, you know, the dosage, the respiratory holding, what you're getting in the field, etc. That's the sort of the QC component of it, right? And so QC in radiology is massive. Then there's the taking the study and sending it to PACS, which is another road fraught with challenges, right? Then it's a case of having someone interpret it, which means providing appropriate clinical information, appropriate timing, 
You know, this is where the turnaround time comes in, ready availability of prior studies, making sure it's the right study, that it's labeled correctly, right patient, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's the generating the report. And in fact, even in that interpretation is another whole arm of misinterpretations, mischaracterization, overcall, undercall, et cetera. You know, that's one area. And, you know, you can take someone and say your academic area of focus of quality might just be in the reports and think of how massive the radiology report is. I mean, we generate reports. That's what we do. The content of the report, the language in the report, the communicating the report to the provider, to making it available to the patient, our recommendations in the report. I mean, you name it. It's an entire world, the report. You know, we've created dashboards that just look at the recommendations so we can manage recommendations. I mean, to me, just studying recommendations is a whole quality improvement opportunity. How do you standardize recommendations? I mean, I don't think a single radiology journal goes out when we're not standardizing it. You know, how do you manage the incidental findings? You know, what's done with that information? You read a chest radiograph on a Sunday night that shows something that looks like pneumonia. How are you going to get that information to the doc so that the doc can get an antibiotic on a Sunday night to that patient to start treating it? And so to me, I love to create, I refer to it as the value chain. You know, you can start up right up front with the doc deciding that she or he wants to order a study all the way down to when they can actually start providing that patient with the necessary treatment or not treatment. And so in between are a gazillion steps. And for me, quality is a constant evolution. And you can just pick any one of these and you can measure it, you can study it, you can improve it. And so, you know, our group, Bettina, is looks at human factors engineering, which is what human factors can you put into that loop to improve safety? So a classic example that Bettina developed was we noticed looking at our QA system, there were a lot of events happening after the significant stage of an interventional procedure. And none of them rose up to be a trend. So it might be, for instance, a guide wire gets left in or a sample gets lost or the wrong biochemical study is asked for. So individually, each of these is significant, yes, but if it's just a one-off, no one's going to raise a red flag and do too much. But it all occurred to us that this is happening at the end of a procedure. And so what Bettina did was she introduced another so-called slice of Swiss cheese where at the end of a procedure, we now have a post-procedure closeout. So, you know, we all do the pre-procedure pause, et cetera, et cetera. But now we actually have a mandatory structured post-procedure closeout, which is how long is the patient going to stay? When are they going to be discharged? Who's going to communicate the results? Are there any hardware issues we need to deal with? Where are the results going? What's the follow-up? So this is a perfect example of looking at your QA data, taking a large step back and saying, I bet you we're missing something here. There's got to be something. And she came up with this idea. And so Bettina's whole thing is about what human factors, what slices of Swiss cheese can we put in to make things safer? And Bettina's, it's also about being willing to speak up during a procedure. What do you do if you notice that the radiologist is about to sampled wrong lesion in the liver or is using a wrong biopsy guide or doesn't have a mask on, how do you speak up in front of a patient? And so she's working on all of these types of things. So she's running programs and speaking up safely, improving communication. She's written papers in radiology on breaking down the authority gradient. So we pick off each of these at one. Olga Brook, on the other hand, another brilliant quality expert, is looking at how to improve outcomes. And so I've tried to hand off everything 
to everybody else in the hope that they can each actually take the ball and run with it. And I'm so proud that they are. We run courses, obviously, in quality, and the buckets are quite simple, right? There's the compliance bucket. You know, I was filling out an ACR, CT scan, accreditation form yesterday, and I noticed it was totally wrong. And so I actually called my tray immediately, and it's like, okay, the new ones will be coming out now. So I don't mind speaking up with their things, because I think that's important. Be willing to speak up and see what you can do to help, and just be decent about it to try and let everybody rise with the same tide. It's a remarkably rich program that you've developed at BIDMC. And I want to return to the question about prioritization. If a new chair or even, you know, any representative of a radiology department approaches you and says, you know, we're not really looking at quality in our department in any organized or meaningful way, how should we get started? Where should we begin? What advice would you provide? I wish I had a simple answer to that. We tend to look at the buckets. And the buckets that I look upon are, you know, number one, you have to provide safe services. And it's very easy to say in our generic department, what are the safety programs that we have? And are we compliant with the national patient safety goals? And those are very difficult to adhere to. There might be little simple things, the write down and read back that the Joint Commission looks for, the pre-procedure pauses, all these things. Make sure you're doing it right. And one thing that we're very fortunate to have is a quality nurse. And so we have a nurse who is walking around doing audits constantly. But look at your quality profile. Collect the data. What does our complication rate look like? Extravasations, contrast reactions, patient falls. What is our dose exposure? Are we taking part in any of the national dose registries? There are a million things you can do. So my advice always is pick a couple, just pick a couple. And if you are hitting 100% on pre-procedure pauses or whatever, sustain it, but then add another project the next year. We like to have every single one of our residents doing practice quality improvement projects. And so this is the ground for that. So that's just the compliance with the national patient safety goals. There's technical quality. And that's pretty easy. You know, you can have it group, but look at, can you minimize the number of sequences in CT or MRI? What is our delays between scanning? What is access? You know, what is the throughput? Where are the hurdles to throughput? What are the hurdles to outcomes? There's the customer satisfaction, which is so important. You know, we all collect press gainy results, but what are you doing with it? You're a chair, Jeff. As a chair, can you just quickly tell me what the top three press gainy issues are in your department? I've sort of ventured to say that a lot of chairs don't know because they've delegated to an ops director or CAO. And it's really important to know what our customers think of what we're doing. And our customers are not just the patients. There might be a scheduler, a transport person, an insurance company, a provider. Pick the providers. You know, if you get a complaint from a cardiologist, sit down with them and understand what the problem is so you can show them that you care because you want to provide value. I mean, ultimately, it's about providing value, right? So that's what I tend to do, which is, are we compliant with what we need to be compliant with? And Joint Commission is challenging enough. ACR, it's a lot of work, obviously, as we all know. But be compliant with that. What is your safety program? What is your technical quality? The clinical quality, I will say, is a very difficult one because physicians do not like to admit that they make mistakes and they're very loath to report their errors, in particular their own errors. When we look at our own data, to be honest, it took seven or eight years before our faculty were willingly participants in submitting their own mistakes. So if you look for seven or eight years, it's a lot of Johnny Criscoll mistakes. But people need to know that there's no punitive consequences of reporting errors, that it's secure, and just participating in this should be good enough for the OPPE process. If there ever really is a problem, and they seldom ever are, you need to help those people to get better. 
I don't believe at all in getting rid of that bad apple. You know, you need to help people to improve. And this is something that we have to do. So that's usually my approach to quality improvement. It's ever evolving. It really is. A lot of what's happening now, I know the RSNA course was human factors engineering. Dave Larson is sort of transitioning slowly to more operational, which it's all the same thing. But I will say that prioritizing stuff is challenging because everyone has their own ideas of what they need to prioritize. Yeah, I'd like to explore the notion of quality and value. And you've used the two terms a bit interchangeably. You know, value has been a particularly focused pursuit in healthcare over the last decade or so. And I wonder if you might speak a moment as to whether or not value and quality are the same thing. So the value equation that we subscribe to in our practice is value relates directly to appropriateness. So if you do something that's inappropriate, there's zero value. So that means you need to have a program managing appropriateness, which is easier said than done, right? You know, this gets to how do you manage appropriate imaging and how do you tell a doc that this is not appropriate? And we actually have incentive programs with our hospital to work at minimizing unnecessary inpatient imaging, particularly in MRI and PET. So appropriateness is really important. Outcomes is massive in the value equation. And I've got to tell you, there is scant data out there on radiology outcomes. It might be for procedures, right? But if I do a liver biopsy, from a patient's perspective, at one point, the outcome might be, I've got enough sample that's adequate to make a diagnosis patient can go home safely. We have good outcomes in interventional radiology. Yes, you've got a sample. Yes, you've got a diagnosis. But what are the real outcomes from diagnostic imaging? And I think it's a huge opportunity for people to work on. What is the outcome when you do a chest x-ray? It might be that it allows someone to treat a patient or not treat a patient or to screen a patient. But there's scant data out there. It's a wonderful research opportunity. So outcomes is another part. The third part is experience. So value equation ties directly to experience. And, you know, if a patient comes in, you can do what you want. But if they have a lousy experience in the parking garage or they're miserable about the double bill that they get, that's a lousy experience and they don't perceive it as any value. If you give the ordering provider a report that's unhelpful, that's a differential, an arm's length or saying could do this, suggest MRI, do this. That might not perceive that as being of any value add. And so we have to be very mindful of that component of value. And then the fourth component on the top line of value that I use is quality. So quality falls within the value equation. And what is quality? How do we measure quality? And so this is where in the lectures I give on it, it's like there's no one way of measuring quality. Pick a couple. Pick a couple that you're doing. You might say that this particular year, our quality might be we're achieving compliance, we're reducing dose across all our thoracic CT scans, we're reducing table time for our MR studies, we're improving the turnaround time in our ED. Pick things that you can improve that you know your data suggests you can. That's providing quality. But then keep on marching and keep on doing it. Underneath, of course, is costs. That's got to come in as well. So every time you recommend someone get an additional unnecessary MRI, that's costs, you know. If you don't get adequate sample and the patient's got to come back, that's cost. So quality to me is a component of the value equation. You know, it's interesting. I did give the oration a couple of years at RSNA on value, and I based this on a talk a few years prior that someone else had given it. Why is it that we keep on repeating the value of talk at RSNA every year? We just need to understand that 
There is no one answer, and we just need to pick off a couple and try and improve what we do. Now, the pursuit of enhancing value in radiology is a resource-intensive one, and those resources point directly toward the human resources that you've been describing, the experts in your department who need the time to be able to pursue these activities, whether it's residents pursuing quality projects, your faculty, the organization as a whole to affect change. Talk to us a little bit about the interfaces that you see between organizations and radiology departments in pursuit of value and quality. And what sorts of variations do you see that provide wind in the sails of radiology departments to pursue quality and those where there may be headwinds that really prevent the department from being able to allocate the resources that they need. This, of course, is a big challenge, right? Because at the organizational level, many are concerned about national rankings, their relic prog scores, etc., which to some extent don't really involve radiology metrics. But we have to be compliant with Joint Commission and other regulatory groups. And so we were fortunate enough to negotiate a so-called quality nurse who essentially manages the safety and our compliance programs and is managing our Joint Commission Ever Readiness program. And she runs a sort of monthly QA meeting with the technology managers. And so that's very helpful. But for the rest, these are not funded positions. And so in my role, I have a vice chair of quality and performance improvement. This person will get actually hospital funding. All the hospital departments are getting 0.3 time supported by the hospital, which is amazing. To my mind, it's worth every cent. And what it does is it allows all the department quality directors to get together twice a month to discuss interdepartmental issues. And it's so important to share cases every month. The department chairs, we get together once a month also to discuss quality cases. And so it's very nice to really see how others approach different cases and how seriously they take everyone else's issues. However, within our department, every clinical section has a quality officer who doesn't get time. And, you know, preparing a monthly M&M meeting takes time. And you add that onto the multi-disc clinic meetings and you add that to the current crisis of staffing, it becomes very, very challenging. Then we have a quality academy over here. I have a director of the academy, Olga Brook, and I want to give her half a day a week to manage that. But, you know, we don't have enough radiologists to do the clinical work. And so she's on a holding pattern for when she can do that. And then we expect all our residents to do PQI projects, practice quality improvement projects. Someone's got to teach them. Someone's got to lecture them how to do projects, how to identify, manage the projects, manage the presentation and the outcomes of the projects. It all takes time. And yeah, we don't have those resources. And so the one way that we try to sell all of this is that at Harvard, we've been able to get the quality track. It's not a unique track, but we're pushing it in the clinical innovation track for advancement and academic promotion. If somebody is doing some excellent work in improving outcomes in patients with pulmonary emboli or whatever, if you're publishing and getting funding and getting recognized and a good reputation in the area, that's going to allow you to advance academically. Both Olga and Bettina and our chest radiologist, Diana Litmanovich, have all advanced up because of their improvement efforts, be it through dose reduction, be it through improved outcomes. Bettina is taking this. She's now looking at taking post-grad courses in human factors engineering. All these things can help the academic promotion. I advanced academically, not through <laughs> Defico grams or abdominal radiology or whatever. It also was through building up a quality reputation and scholarship and external funding in that area. So this is something that keeps people happy. But I got to tell you, it takes time and resources and it's very difficult. The demands of the organization outweigh 
our ability to provide those services. And so we're always behind, which gets to a phrase you used earlier, you know, how do you prioritize these things? And I have an amazing vice chair of operations, Jim Rawson, and this is one of Jim's bugbears. You know, how do we prioritize the 95 different projects we would like to do? And Jim would like to do these projects, but someone else would like to do this. And it all brings in another topic that I'm getting very involved in now, which is well-being and burnout. And, you know, taking on too much and staff shortages and not feeling like you're doing what you'd like to do and being told from above what you need to do, the so-called moral insults and injuries of, you know, we have to achieve a four-hour turnaround time and we have to do a timeout or you're going to lose this accreditation and you've got to write all these so-called moral contributors to our lack of wellness in the workforce are significant and we have to take them very seriously. And so this is now becoming something that I'm doing. We ran a couple of courses through the inter-society meeting. We addressed burnout. And then through the Röntgen Ray, we're running a national summit in a couple of months on radiologist burnout in the hope that we can try to find some solutions which are equally challenging. So yeah, I think what you're hearing is here a message. I identify 10 problems and I prioritize one of them and then work on another one. (laughs) Well, I'm really gratified that burnout is something that you're focusing on Hopefully, we'll see some progress made, but it's obviously a very, very important concern in our field right now. I want to turn our attention a little bit to your role as department chair. You became the department chair at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in 2008, which makes this your 15th year. Congratulations. It's fantastic. Thinking back to 2008, what were the immediate needs of your department at that time? You know, when I came in, I honestly was naive about the roles and responsibilities of a chair, and I don't think that's unusual. I came in with a certain skill set, assuming that that would somehow suffice. I knew where my big gaps were. I don't claim to be an MBA or financial whiz kid by any means. My assumption was is that I would build a team around me who could manage these things, and I've learned that, you know, obviously building the right team is important, but that you're never going to have that perfect team and people are going to come and go and leave. You know, I think at the time, Herb Kressel had run the department really well. He'd left to edit the journal. And so the department's needs, again, were very much at cyclical, right? So staffing becomes an important need. We weren't thinking about retention of faculty. You know, Beth Israel was a wonderful department, and we assumed people would come and never, ever leave. And so the whole concept of recruiting and retaining and advancing faculty has been something that's happened over the years. I think also understanding the technical needs and expenses of a department, as I'm sure every chair you as well have discovered, you can't assume that, you know, you're going to get brand new MRI, CTs and PET scanners every couple of years because you're now competing. I think I underestimated HR issues and I underestimated the ongoing turf issues that I would have to deal with to this day. And so, you know, that's sort of been pretty much what it is. I also looked at the department and we had some really strong second row of leaders, many of whom have left to become chairs in other departments, unfortunately. Yet at the same time, it's great. I like to think that we are a training ground for future leaders which we certainly are, and a lot of our faculty have become leaders of private groups or academic groups around the country. And while each one might be a loss for us, it's something that we really want to do and need to do. And so that's something. And so it's a case of always advancing faculty, some of whom aren't ready for that. You know, I've learned a lot of hard lessons, obviously, one of which is that you have to also not forget about the leaders in the department and advance them. You know, you can't just focus on advancing that new faculty member or that assistant professor, it's what about the vice chairs? I have an amazing group of vice chairs and I can't forget about them. Some of them might want to become hospital presidents or chairs, might want to take my role. And you need to keep on 
advancing people to keep them satisfied with what they're doing. And so I think to me, it was more a case of, gee, this is a great job. It's a great department. Herb Kressel's left us in superb state, but you can't rest on any laurels because the minute you do that, as I'm sure you've even discovered, things change. They constantly change. Who could ever have imagined COVID and the devastating impact of that? And, you know, luckily I have Jim Rawson, who's sort of passionate about operations and passionate about strategy and passionate about disaster management, you know, always thinking about things like these. Who could have imagined cyber security attacks? Who could have imagined that we'd be talking about going into epic this day and age? You know, so there are all these different things. Who could have imagined the suddenly having to sustain remote readers and interpersonal issues because of remote teams? And who could have imagined the challenges with us needing to hire people out of state and the licensing and the complex decisions there. It's an ever-evolving task, as you know, and that's what we deal with on a daily basis. Through that very well-articulated, ever-evolving task, I'm curious the extent to which your leadership style or approach has evolved over these 15 years. I'd like to think it's evolved a lot. I think when I came in as an internal candidate, there are particular challenges with that, You know, everybody knows me and I know them and I know their strengths. They know my strengths and my weaknesses. And you try to be the nice guy, you know, making tough decisions is particularly difficult. Making decisions about roles or employment is particularly difficult. People try to influence you to different extents, knowing what might influence you. And so that's been difficult. And then I think taking my own work ethic and trying to sort of force that on the faculty was something I learned did not work well at all. You know, I can't sort of say this is how it is. And so I think over the years, I like to believe I've become much more inclusive. I've delegated a lot to my vice chairs and my section chiefs and my medical directors. I like to think that I have an open door policy, which is good at sometimes, it's not always that wonderful. And I like to be inclusive of all ideas. It does then mean that, you know, where I I started, I think I wanted to make tough decisions. I wanted to make the call. I wanted to implement change. Probably ran in wanting to make too much change and introduce too much change, which of course unsettles a group. And I think that might have overflown to the other extent, which is sometimes a lack of willingness to make a decision, needing to say, look, these are the issues. Thank you for all your input. Now, this is what the decision is going to be. And I hope that you can stick with it. You know, also learning that in different forums, like an executive committee forum, anything goes, anyone should say anything they want, but that needs to stay in that room and not go outside. That's another important lesson, which is you need your leadership team to be really supportive outside of that forum, because that's another role of the leaders. It's listening and hearing and providing eyes and ears in the department, and also advocating and supporting for you. And if you know if that's not the situation, then you do have the wrong group of leaders. Right now, it's managing morale. It's very difficult. You know, people have been working so, so hard over the last couple of years, and there's not exactly too much light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the staffing situation's evolving and challenging, and we have faculty members who I think are still living in that la-la world, hoping that we're going to go back to what it was before. And that ain't going to happen. And so it's very difficult to espouse a vision for what the next radiology world is going to look like when no one's quite sure. We know that there's going to be constant shop shortages. We know that there's going to be financial restrictions and reductions. We know that there's going to be technology restrictions and the expenses will continue to go up. You know, my list is long, 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 and I'm sure it parallels yours. But how do you prepare a 
hardworking, at times demoralized faculty to adjust to this. That's what's quite challenging, you know. You mentioned that trying to have an open door policy is something that you have pursued, but that that's not always a good idea. What did you mean by that? You know, I like to think that any faculty member can come at any time and bring any item to me. You know, at times people come with items and it's honestly disappointing to me. Like, why didn't they discuss this with a section chief? Why did they let this go so far? And they're not always a good idea because it opens doors to, I guess, a lot of opportunities for improvement at different levels. Others do use it as a bit of an opportunity to whine and to complain. You know, you then do need to start a process for investigating and managing. So, you know, I guess... It's always a good idea, but people come with expectations that they're going to be heard and you're going to resolve the problem. And often you can't. You know, those that come in and say, I expect compensation increase or else I'm going to leave. And there's often, I'm sorry, we can't do this because of this and this and this. And so you wish that there were processes in place that were fostering better communication or understanding amongst the faculty. But I have to say, everyone that comes into my office, whether that's just for a casual check-in, a couple actually come in and say, Johnny, how are you doing? And that is amazing. I really like that because it sends a nice message to me. It's really nice to know that I still have that friendly relationship with some of my faculty that they can come in and, Johnny, we should go and have a beer sometime, you know. How are things doing? What can I do to help you today? I love that. Bettina Seward's unbelievable. I'll call her out over here now. Johnny, what can I do for you? How can I help you today? Anything I can do. It's really nice. Others will come in and usually it's a case of clarifying items or, you know, as happened yesterday, someone came in with some items and was like, okay, you know what? We can do this. Let's schedule a meeting with this or let's delegate this to somebody else. So I do like the open door policy. You do want to help people to know where the right place is to go, but you also don't want to think that, People feel you blocking them. So, you know, to be honest, I'm more of a social schmoozer type of person. So I really don't mind. I just often feel bad when I'm saying, sorry, I can't do that. Or this is the way it is. And I guess, you know, that's what they need to hear. After 15 years as chair and with all the changes that you described and the evolution that you've pursued, what keeps you energized within the role? I've thought about this a lot because I have to tell you, and this is not unique. I mean, you know that I'm heading a task force for SCARD on chair burnout. A lot of chairs have or are in the process or will burn out. And it's impactful. It's impactful on a personal level. It's impactful on the way it impacts your department and your relations in your department and your fellow chairs in a hospital. It's really, really tough. And, you know, through all my lecturing and studying and reading about the topic, it's really important to find ways that you can Get your mind off of the work. So I think keeping to a schedule, I, in the last couple of years, have really tried to keep up with the academic stuff, as difficult as it still is. Reading radiology and AJR and academic radiology and JACR is something I'll always do. And I do find I enjoy a lot of the administrative type papers now, the burnout papers. I still enjoy doing things to help other people. So to be honest, This burnout summit that we're running, I'm really enjoying that because why? I reached out to all the department chairs. We're trying to get all the chief wellness officers from all the radiology departments to come because I want to get everyone on the same page. So the Röntgen Ray has started its own wellness committee and the ACR has their wellness group and all the national organizations and even the subspecialty groups now have wellness groups. So instead of us all 
reinventing the wheel. Let's see what we can do together. But I also recognize that wellness, it's an opportunity to engage members. So, you know, in the abdominal radiology group, the wellness group, it's engaging members of different generations to come together to see what we can do as a group for each other. So I'm really enjoying that. I love our research meetings. You know, I'm keeping my name off the overwhelming majority of papers here, but when I have an idea and I give it to someone and I see it getting an award at RSNA, that's meaningful to me. That's a feel-good type of thing, you know. I also love it when the hospital chief comes to me and says, you know, Johnny, would you mind serving as a mentor to this person? I feel good about that. This morning I got a wonderful letter from a patient and the fact that I could pick up the phone and thank somebody for doing something great, it's, it's terrific, you know. But you've also got to be mindful, you know, in a chair's role, you're the conductor of the orchestra, you turn your back to the audience and so you have to be trying to extracting that music from the players rather than taking any credit. And so that's something that you've got to be very mindful of. This is no longer about you. This is helping others to grow and get to where they want to be. So there's always work to be done. But I think you can hear, you know, granted after a couple of cups of coffee, I'm still pretty energized. 15 years is quite a while to be doing this and it's evolved, you know, to a ridiculous extent. But yesterday... I had this idea to develop a new education academy in our department. And it's like, that's what keeps me going. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hand it over to my vice chair of education. But let's build an education academy. Let's build a terrific non-interpretive skill program. I like building and then handing off to allow somebody else to do it. I will provide the manure and the compost. I can provide the seed. And I want others to go and grow it and enjoy it. Nicely said. Now, you're currently the immediate past president of the American Rankin Ray Society. Amongst all the societies in radiology, what makes the Rankin Ray unique? Rankin Ray is a very different society, right? It's very much an educational society. And even within the Rankin Ray, you know, there's always discussion to what extent should we be focusing on science and funding basic science. It's unique in that in parallel with the ACR, there's a large private practice membership. Almost 75% of the Rankin Ray members are private practice. And so therefore, the offerings need to be pretty general across all areas. And then the private practitioners will get a lot of their necessary CME training through this. The other area that I think is absolutely unique is it's a way for early faculty to get their names out there that wouldn't necessarily happen at the subspecialty level or the RSNA level. So, for example, if I've got a junior faculty member who's starting up on some research project, it might not meet the levels of being accepted for presentation at RSNA or subspecialty, but this is the area where it's more likely to be accepted. And so they can go and start getting their name out there, giving talks, there's a gazillion different committees of every subspecialty. And so there are lots and lots of opportunities for junior and mid-career people to get onto committees. I don't know any other organization that's quite as nimble as the Röntgen Ray. So if someone on the exec council wants to start a new committee, they literally can. We typically would say, let's give this a try for three years, see if it gathers some moss. And then we'll make it a formal committee. And so we're very nimble in terms of wellness and the DEI and the PQI. And I'll give a shout out to Nigel Kadom in that regard. We also shared things that we no longer need. So, you know, we had a great group looking at online educational content. And it got to the point where we no longer needed that because it's just become part and parcel of what we do. So it's constantly evolving and constantly keeping ahead of the curve. It's shifting largely now for years. The Rankin Ray has been offering online courses outside of the national meeting. And so we were well prepped and strategized for that. And so when COVID came, hey, the annual meeting was yet just another online course that we do. You know, so it's always been very innovative, allowed people to do what they want, 
We want to be your educational docking station. Come and dock here and you'll get all your credits, in particular if you're in private practice. If you're in academics, we want you to come because you can actually get up to the next and the third step of the ladder academically. So that's how we've always seen it. And during your year as president, what in particular did you strive to accomplish and what did you ultimately accomplish? So in my presidential address, I addressed how to build a high-functioning team. This is something that we've been doing in our department. Bettina also is very passionate about it, only because the concept of a high-functioning team is an umbrella that embraces a gazillion different things that all of us are doing. At the time that I gave my address, we were talking about burnout. We were talking about diversity, equity, professionalism, transparency, intentional inclusion cultural sensitivity and bias, and all these essential things that we need people to understand and to try to learn, because these are the important components of a high-functioning team. From that, we did a lot of writing, and we created a website, actually, devoted, in fact, to high-functioning teams, and it addresses all of the stuff. You know, I think what's happened is it sort of gained some traction, and I think everybody now might not be talking necessarily about high-functioning teams, but if you think about it, Why do we talk about bias and upstanders and professionalism and quality and all these things? It's ultimately because you want to be an integrated, cohesive, collaborative team so you can provide better care for your patients. Certainly, the lesson has come from business. And, you know, if you're going to the literature, huge amount of stuff in the business world. And, you know, to be most successful, you need a diverse, collaborative team. And this is where I get into the flat authority gradients. Effective leadership, managing the multi-generational workforce, all these types of things fall under the high-functioning team. And so it became a very nice umbrella that I pushed. I wrote a monthly article for the In Practice magazine on it. A lot of it became, you know, wellness-related. How do we get out of our dark basement and find that proverbial sunroom? How do we prove to be peer supporters to our colleagues in the workplace so we can recognize when someone might be ailing and provide them with the necessary resources? How do we manage the multi-generational workforce? Oi! That's challenging. That's really challenging, you know, and it's not black and white. Baby boomers, Gen XYZ, and soon Gen Alpha people in our departments, they all have different preferences, styles, communication choices. It's so amazing. And how do we do it as a leader? How do you take this all into account? One is obviously through intentional inclusion. Other is through upstander training, cultural sensitivity. So all these types of things, you know. Outstanding to have helped to widen the scope of the educational landscape for the Renkin Ray uh, to involve some of these topics that, you know, might be considered non-clinical, but at the end of the day, they directly relate to our ability to give clinical care. So kudos for that. I mean, just before your year as president at the Rankin Ray, you were president of the Society of Abdominal Radiology. Maybe tell us a little bit about your time on the SAR board and your work as president there. You know, I enjoyed the SAR to an enormous extent. For one reason is that my colleagues on the board were the most amazing people. Getting involved in national organizations, getting onto national committees, you get exposed to people that you might know their name, but honestly, to be able to mix and mingle with them in a social environment, in an informal environment, it's the most wonderful component of my career. I was blessed with incredible people on the SAR board. Giles Boland, Bill Mayer-Smith, Sherry Cannon, Judy Yee. I mean, the list goes on and on, Desiree Morgan, and and it's continued. And it's an amazing group that's very, very nimble in that we can introduce and change things constantly. You know, the one thing I did was when I arrived, we tended to chop and change and get a different portfolio every year. So year one might be education, year two, science, year three, finances. And it was like, oh, 
this is not going to work for Johnny Criscoll. I just don't have that skill set. So working together with Bernie King, who I admire honestly more than anybody, transitioned the structure of the board so that you actually come on into a specific portfolio and you stay with that. So the most recent member of the SAR board, it's just been announced, Jen Zhang, she's come on and she will be the education liaison for the next couple of years. And so it leads to continuity. In my own way, we fostered innovation through some of the national lectures. Giles Boland and I had worked to sort of bring in some national speakers instead of giving a talk on characterized adrenal lesions. We spoke about speaking up and DEI and things like that. And Sherry has taken that to an amazing extent. And I don't want to take any credit for any of this at all. I think as a board together, we've really expanded to do things like include trainees because we recognize that it's really important to go after the med students and the residents. We want them all in abdominal radiology for obvious reasons. We've included mentoring programs for early career people. Bill Mayer-Smith had an amazing idea for that academic radiologist working in a small institution where there might not be enough patients for clinical trials to foster collaborative research projects. We've got just like amazing number of new things constantly happening. And the organization is not shy or frightened to say, that one is great, but it can be sunset. Or this one's not working out, let's get rid of it. So it's really a terrific, terrific organization. And, you know, like a lot of subspecialty societies, it's expanding dramatically. So, you know, it's got a massive international relations group now, particularly in South America. It's a huge educational component. I started a group called the APDO, the Association for Program Directors in Abdominal Radiology, just to provide a forum where they could all get together and meet to discuss common problems. You know, so it's like every other society. We want members to come and be lifelong members where they can contribute. They can hear the best science. They can hear the best practical operations. And I was looking yesterday at the upcoming meeting. It's so wonderful to note it's not all abdominal radiology. It's leadership, diversity. I'm running a session with Sherry Cannon and a few others on what is abdominal radiology going to look like in 2030. Luckily, Jim Brink and Hedy Hitchek just wrote a paper in radiology on radiology in 2040. So I can liberally borrow from that. I don't have to put too much work in it. So it's a great, great organization. The challenge for SAR is that it's growing so quickly that it can't continue going to have meetings at wonderful, small, resort-like locations. That's the challenge. And so it's a good challenge to have. And also, I think it's very well set to run a lot more of our content online. So it's a great organization. Congratulations on the incredible evolution of the SAR. Love to hear a little bit about your family and how you find time to spend with them. (laughs) They might question that. My wife, Pam, And I, we married in 1987 and immigrated that same year. And she's a pharmacist, passionate about everything, loves art and music and everything. And so because she couldn't work in Nashville, she actually ended up working in one of the local art galleries, which was great just for the people we met and the art we were exposed to. She unfortunately has a chronic health condition, which precludes her from working. And it's been a little challenging because it means she hasn't been able to travel. She is immunocompromised. So she's been a real trooper. And that's coupled with the fact that her entire family live in Sydney, Australia. So she misses them terribly. But an amazing friend, colleague, partner, I couldn't be more fortunate, honestly. And I have two children. My oldest is my son. He is interested in politics and economics and sustainability and has done a lot of work in that area, got involved in helping to create and develop 
programs for reducing forest reduction and smoke, etc., in Central America. And he went to Middlebury and then he went to University of Chicago. And he actually lives in Boston, about 10 minutes drive from me. He and his wife, who has a master's in education, had a first grandchild three months ago. So we now have a little Ellie in our family. Ellie's grown up in the world of COVID and masks and social distancing. So it's been challenging and really exciting. And he works for a company out in California remotely. They are into energy analysis and consulting, especially as relates to the renewable energy sources. My amazing daughter, Jessie, went to Clark University over here. She has been very keen and interested and has worked in the education world, working with people that are differently abled. Jessie has worked in the local school system with children on the autism spectrum. And she's also spent a couple of years working with adults with different types of disabilities and teaching them life skills so they could be as independent as possible. And she's amazing. So I'm really proud of my family. I obviously have extended family in New York, my family. I have extended family in Australia, my wife's family. So we are sadly spread out. Well, it sounds like a rich family life. And with all that you do professionally as well, How do you find time for yourself? What do you do to unwind and recharge? I try to subscribe to the basics, but I think the emphasis on try, I try to exercise. I try to walk, I get on my treadmill often. I love photography. If you ever bump into me at any of the national meetings, I've probably got a camera around my neck. My wife and I garden a lot together. In fact, this last summer, we purchased seven and a half thousand pounds of rocks, which we distributed around our garden to make rockeries. A lot of our gardening is planned to attract birds and other animals. So we have a pond and a lot of plants specifically grown for getting goldfinches and for hummingbirds. And so over the years, I'm a frustrated hummingbird photographer. When I try to get my mind off work, I'm reading about cameras and lenses and way to freeze motion of birds. But when you've seen me at national meetings with my photographs, it's getting people, flowers, nature, all things like that. So yeah, that's what gets my mind off it to a large extent. It's really, really important to find ways of doing something different. Like you, I obviously enjoy music. I love listening to music. I think nowadays probably a grandchild is becoming another diversion. That's another evolving, important component of one's life. Looking ahead, what excites you most about radiology? I mentioned to you earlier, I had a meeting earlier this morning about a turf incursion in radiology. And you realize after a while that the nature of radiology has always been that we innovate and we develop and then others try to grab the best of what we've got. And there's no shortage of examples. I think it's going to be really interesting what's going to happen. What types of collaborative relationships are we going to have? with other clinical departments. What is going to happen with IR and diagnostic radiology? You know, I love meeting with the interviewing med students every year because I get a sense of what they are thinking. Will IR go down its own separate path more than it has already? Where is the work of the radiologist going to be done? Is remote work going to be something that's real? Are, Are the academic groups going to start collaborating more and more and more with remote telehealth groups? You know, my list of questions goes on and on and on. You know, Jim Rawson keeps on asking me, how can we work smarter? It's a great question. I wish I had an answer. To what extent can we take better advantage of IT and data science and AI beyond just the helping us with diagnoses? But let's get real about optimizing our work lists and communicating and managing and closing the loop, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's going to be a lot more collaboration. I think managing the finances and the reimbursements is going to get more and more complicated as there's only a finite amount of money available. And so, you know, we don't need to continue growing. It might be that we need to shrink to be very practical about this. And so 
It's like riding a wave. You know, we're not quite sure where it's going, but it's a great wave. And it's always exciting because there's always great new people coming on. And I'm really excited about the future, as I always have been, because it's one of constant evolution. Dr. Jonathan Kreskel, your passion and enthusiasm really shines through for medicine, for basic science, for clinical radiology, and for the leadership and management collaboration and team-based activities that have enabled you to have such an impact on our field. I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey and your thoughts with us today on Taking the Lead. Jeff, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. And I wish that I could ask you all the same questions and maybe one day we will, but I really appreciate your time and your interest. And thank you for doing this. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.